Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Hey, we've got a great guest today. I get to have a conversation with Tim Alberta. He wrote the book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory. I first became familiar with Tim when he was a journalist with Politico. And then I read his first book, American Carnage. It's a play-by-play of the 2016 presidential race. It's kind of part history, part political insider gossip. I mean, to be honest, it's the kind of stuff I love. And his writing style is fantastic. It's very conversational. You feel like you are right there. But as much as I liked American Carnage, the new book is even better. In our conversation, Tim lays out what he thinks is wrong with American evangelicalism. How did American evangelicals come to put so much hope and faith in politics? And what have been the repercussions of doing so? I think Tim has some really hard things to say to the church, and you might not agree with him on everything. I don't. That's okay. But when you talk to him, when you read his book, even in this conversation that you're getting ready to listen to, I think it's pretty obvious that Tim loves Jesus and he loves the church. He grew up in the church. His dad became a pastor after becoming a Christian later in life. So I think Tim's role of being a political journalist and a church insider means that we should listen to what he says with an open mind. Oh, by the way, in the book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, Tim quotes a tweet thread from Patrick, and I think he gets Patrick really wrong. So if nothing else, stay around and listen and hear that part of the conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. Let's go. Tim Alberta, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled to be here and thrilled to be with a fellow EPC guy. This is cool. Yeah, I'm a pastor of an evangelical Presbyterian church, which is the kind of church that you grew up in. Your dad was a pastor. Let me just say from the outset, though, that I love your writing. I love both the style of which you write. It's very conversational, fast-paced. But I also love the topics you take on. In American Carnage, you talked about the rise of Donald Trump and how that affected the Republican Party, the moral compromises that you saw people make along the way. And it was a very political book. The new book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, is really a book, I'd say, about the church. I mean, politics is looming in the background everywhere, but the book is primarily about Christians and how Christians are responding in what you call an age of extremism. So early 
early in the book, you tell the story about your dad suddenly dying of a heart attack. And he was a pastor in Southeast Michigan. You go back to the church for the visitation with your family, and then you speak at the funeral. And kind of what happens there sets up what you wrestle with in this book. So could you just tell us a little bit about what happened at your dad's funeral that caused you to realize that you needed to write a book like this? My dad was an amazing dude, and we were very close. And the last time I saw him, it happened to be in Washington, D.C., the week that my first book, American Carnage, had come out. And that book was about Donald Trump's takeover of the Republican Party. And there were some unflattering revelations in the book about Donald Trump. And so, you know, I was sort of in the crosshairs of right-wing media at that time when my dad suddenly died. The last conversations I had with him, in fact, were he was sort of goading me to pivot away from political journalism. You know, he said, look, God's given you these great talents to write and to report. And do you really want to spend your whole life around these knuckleheads in Washington? Like, aren't there bigger stories for you, stories of more eternal significance to try to write about? And then he dies very unexpectedly. And of course, you're in shock and trying to grieve and make sense of this. And so I go back to Michigan to the church that he'd pastored for more than 25 years called Cornerstone Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And I was raised in the church. I mean, my mom was on the staff there. I grew up like doing my homework in the office wing and bringing dates to Bible study. And I worked at the church as a janitor for a year while I was going to community college. So, I mean, the church was my tribe, right? So I come back and while we're at the visitation, a number of people are coming up to me wanting to basically read me the riot act a little bit, criticizing my criticisms of Donald Trump taking me to task for not being on the right side, not playing for the right team. I had some people asking me if I was still a Christian, because how could I be if I was going to be so critical of Donald Trump? And it really got to the point where it was shocking, and I was really bothered by it, and eventually kind of had to take a walk because I was worried that I might react in a way that was not Christ-like. And so the next day at the funeral itself— when I gave my eulogy, I said to people, you know, like, what are we doing here? Like, is this the time and the place? And just kind of challenge them about our discipleship and about our formation. And I'm not sure if I should have done that or not to this day. I kind of go back and forth. But I said what I said. And after the funeral service ended and after we went to the cemetery and we buried my dad, we came back to my parents' house, my brothers and I, and one of the church ladies who was there preparing a meal for us, she handed me an envelope with my name on it, and it had been left for me at the church after the funeral. And there was a note inside, and it was a screed. It was like a full, page-long, handwritten screed from a former elder in the church, somebody who'd known me since I was a little kid, a friend of my dad's. And he basically just let me have it, said that I was a part of the deep state, that I was a traitor against God and country, that I was undermining his ordained leader of this nation, Donald Trump, and that I should be ashamed of myself. And if that sounds absurd and dramatic, it was. It was those things. And I was just still in such a state of shock that I couldn't fully process why this person would send that note. But it was kind of a clarifying moment in a lot of ways because I knew that there was something amiss 
in the church, both the capital C church and the lowercase C church. I knew that there were things that I'd become really disillusioned with growing up. And even as I was still walking very faithfully with Jesus, I had this real growing skepticism, gnawing skepticism about what was happening inside evangelicalism at large. And so I guess in many ways, that moment and that letter, it kind of lit a fire under me and prompted me to try and go find some answers to the question of what on earth is happening here? What has gone wrong here? It's interesting because being a pastor myself, a handful of years ago, people would come and ask me questions trying to decide if our church was for them. They might ask me questions about Calvinism and Arminianism or about the role of women in ministry or about our view of baptism or, you know, spiritual gifts or a variety of theological and biblical topics. And then subtly and then suddenly the questions changed as people tried to figure out if our church was the kind of church they wanted to go to. They asked questions about Donald Trump or about critical race theory or about conspiracy theories. And I'm not saying they all held the same view or wanted to hear the same answer from me, but there definitely was a fracture that happened in the church over cultural and political issues instead of biblical and theological issues. People weren't so much concerned, are we the kind of church that cares for the poor and the needy as much as they were worried about where we were going to come down on some cultural topic of the day. So is that what you saw in all your reporting is that there was a different set of questions that Christians were asking? Yeah, I mean, Pastor, you put it perfectly right there, because that's exactly how it's described to me in conversations with pastors that I meet all across the country. So, in fact, in Chapter 2 of the book, I go back to another EPC church, Goodwill, up in the Hudson Valley in New York, And the pastor there, John Torres, is a family friend. He was actually the music director at this church when he was like in his 20s when I was a baby there and my dad was the associate pastor. So he's known me like my whole life. And he was talking about this very thing. He says, look, basically what we've done now inside the church is we've taken the biblical standard, right, for being a part of the body of believers. You know, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in his only son, Jesus Christ, who, you know, we've taken that standard and we've kind of pushed it to the side. And now we've said the standard for coming here and being a part of our body of believers is, well, who did you vote for? Did you get vaccinated? What do you think about critical race theory? And that is remarkable because as a reporter, you start to become suspicious when you hear the same story too many times, right? You want some deviation to at least prove, okay, like there's a spectrum here. But I mean, man, I will tell you time and time and time again, all these conversations, including with pastors who, you know, thinking about the spectrum. So you have some pastors like Chris Winans at my home church of Cornerstone EPC, who took over for my dad, who He really doesn't get into politics at all from the pulpit. I mean, he'll speak on the single issue of abortion, but even then he does not frame it in political terms at all. He frames this as a spiritual issue and makes that distinction that I'm not giving you a political sermon right now. I'm not telling you who to go vote for. I'm telling you about life being made in the image of God, right? So he's sort of at one end of the spectrum. Then way over here, you've got the sort of blood and soil Christian nationalist pastors who have just totally leaned into the fear and the grievance and the resentment of some in their congregation and have turned Sunday morning worship services into Fox News segments. The thing they have in common, Pastor, is that both ends of that spectrum, they'll tell me the exact same thing that you just told me, that when people come to their churches now, they're not asking about 
Calvinism. They're not asking about any doctrinal precepts. They're not even asking about the music or some of the stuff that used to divide congregations. It's all about these sort of political and cultural schisms. I want to go back to the last conversation that you had with your dad, or at least in person. You were at this book party that the CEO of Politico was hosting for you, celebrating American Carnage and its publication. And your dad and mom have driven from Southeast Michigan to take part of this party in Washington, D.C. And the way you describe it so perfect, your dad's a pastor. He's kind of frumpy. He's got these khakis on and, you know, all these other guys, I'm sure, in their designer suits or whatever. And yet your dad's the life of the party. He's given all the one-liners, the zingers. Everybody is kind of attracted to him. But then he takes you aside and he shares something with you. I don't know. I just keep thinking about it. Could you just tell us about that conversation that you had with him off to the side in the middle of this nice Washington, D.C. home? And how did you react to what he told you? Yeah, my dad was a character, but he was also, I mean, to his core, since we were little kids. And I'll just mention this by way of background, because I think it's important. You know, my dad grew up in a broken, unbelieving home, and he became an atheist, and he found great worldly success. He was a banker in New York, and he was driving a Cadillac and making a great living and had a big home and a beautiful wife and had everything you could ever want, and yet he felt totally empty inside. And after 10 years or so in atheism, he stumbled into this little church up in the Hudson Valley, Goodwill, heard the gospel for the first time, and became born again. And then he left his entire life behind and he and my mother basically lived for the next 20 years like they were poor. I mean, they gave up everything, all their worldly successes. They gave it up so that they could go preach and minister. So my dad taught my brothers and me since we were little that if you weren't serving God, if you weren't glorifying God with your pursuits, then they meant nothing, right? And so here we are inside this mansion in Washington, and there's a couple of hundred really important people there, members of Congress and diplomats and, you know, CEOs and the whole thing. And yeah, my dad pulls me aside and he can see that I'm just on cloud nine and I'm floating and my chest is puffed out to here. You know, this is the biggest moment in my professional career. And he just puts his arm around me and he says, hey, you see all these people? And I said, yeah, I see him. (laughs) And he says, yeah, most of them aren't going to care about you in a week. And at first, I'm just like, huh? Like, what? Why would you say that, right? I'm thinking about it. I'm just sitting there with him, and he's kind of grinning at me. And I get it. I get it. And then he says to me, you know, remember, just like in this world, on this earth, all glory is fleeting, right? This thing that you're doing right now, it's cool, man. It's cool. You wrote a book. I'm happy for you. I'm proud of you. I mean, I've got a card sitting up here framed that he wrote me that night telling me how proud he is, right? He was proud, but he was also trying to just remind me that like, you probably weren't put on this earth to write about Donald Trump. God probably didn't give you these talents of yours to just write about the demographics of the next election, that maybe there's something more for you, and that these folks in Washington who love you today and want to be here with you to get a piece of you right now, do they care about your eternal soul? Are they invested in your relationship with God? And are you invested in their relationship with God? Are you invested in their eternal soul? Or are you viewing them just as transactionally as they view you? I think may have been some of the subtext as well. So I got it. I was a little bit resentful, but I got it. 
Well, I just love your dad because here he's able to be proud of you and able to enjoy the moment with you who drive out there from Michigan, but he is able to see clearly. And that idea that, are you sure you want to live for this glory? It's so fleeting. It's here today and gone tomorrow. I was sharing it with some men I meet with regularly for a little study in the morning. And I was sharing that line from your book because I think it's something that challenges all of us. But I also think it's part of why you named, I could be wrong here, but part of why you named your book what you did, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, because it's as if the church at large needs to heed your father's warning that there's this glory. It's an earthly glory. It's a temporary glory. It's a political glory. It's a financial glory, whatever it is. But man, it's fleeting. And are you the church at large? Are you the church at large? Do you really want to live for that? Or do you want to live to do the will of your father in heaven? Am I right? Is that where the title kind of comes from? Yes, and I would take it a step further, because it's not just the glory that's fleeting, but it's this pursuit of political and cultural power that I document in the second section of the book, this idea that Christians are being pushed out of positions of power and that we need to reclaim them, that we need to hold the commanding heights of society because this is a Judeo-Christian nation and our values are being punished and persecuted. And then taking it back to section one of the book, the kingdom, the same idea, right? That this kingdom here on earth, this kingdom of America specifically, that has become a source of idolatry, I think, for too many believers, that it too is fleeting. Now, Let's be clear, just as my dad was proud of me, yet simultaneously warning against these things, like, I'm proud to be an American. I'm glad I was born in this country. I love this country. I'm not burning flags over here while we're having this conversation. But I think at the same time, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are taught time and time and time again that your kingdom is not of this world, that your citizenship is not of this world, that your ultimate home is not of this world. You know, it's really interesting. You know this, Pastor. I hate to preach to a pastor, but I'll preach to your listeners at least. But, you know, when Jesus talks in the Gospels about the kingdom of heaven or about the kingdom of God, he doesn't talk about it like it's an abstraction. He doesn't talk about it like some make-believe mythical thing. He talks about it like it's a real place, a physical place, a community, almost a nation, if you will. And he talks about it as a binary decision, he frames it like you can be a part of that kingdom and you can live for my power and for my glory, or you can have this kingdom here on earth. You can have this power here. You can glorify yourself on earth, but you can't do both, right? He does really frame it as a binary thing. And it feels to me, if I can say this in humility, it feels to me like at the heart of the crisis in the church today is that too many believers are trying to have both. They're trying to have both kingdoms, right? They're trying to have both sets of power. They're trying to have both sets of glory. And it's been, in some sense, catastrophic for the credibility of the witness. Because their loyalties are divided at best between the kingdom of self or the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. You tell a story of going on CBN and being interviewed by a guy named John Jessup. And I think if I read it right, there was kind of this Twitter exchange going on. The Russell Moore, who is a friend of yours and has been on our podcast, was saying some things about Donald Trump or about the kingdom of God and where things should be headed. And Jerry Falwell was arguing with him. And here's what I really care about is you chimed in and you said on Twitter, there are Russell Moore Christians and there are Jerry Falwell Jr. Christians. Choose wisely, brothers and sisters. 
So it's as if you're saying, hey, there's two different kinds of Christians out there, and you gave them these titles, Russell Moore and Jerry Falwell Jr. Christians. Can you describe those two groups? I mean, I know in some sense Moore and Falwell are avatars for something bigger. Can you just describe those two groups of Christians to us and maybe what they have in common or maybe, more importantly, where they differ? Well, I think what they have in common— and this goes overlooked maybe sometimes, Pastor, but like, you know, in an EPC church, you'll appreciate this. I mean, the vast majority of folks who we're talking about here in the white evangelical tradition in this country, they're pretty well aligned on most of these cultural and political issues. It's not like there's some huge degree of variance where you have like intense disagreements over some of the basic culture war dividing line stuff. I mean, by and large, these are people of a conservative ideology, conservative culturally, conservative politically, conservative theologically. So there's not necessarily a huge amount of disagreement. I think where the schism really becomes apparent and intense is on this question of kind of priorities and on this question of engagement and really on this question of how. So in other words, if they're in agreement on the what, like what do we believe and what policies do we support, broadly speaking, and the who, you know, who did we vote for in the last election, right? I'm guessing that if your congregation is anything like the other EPC congregations I know, it's probably a pretty healthy majority of people who voted for the same party in that election, right? But when it comes to this question of how, that's where the divergence is. How do we as believers engage with the culture? How do we as believers conduct ourselves in political life? How do we as believers choose to process some of these really tricky issues? How do we talk about them? How do we disagree about them? So when I describe these two camps, I really think, and I believe I said this around that part in the book, I think part of it is when I talk about priority or maybe emphasis I almost think it comes to this basic question of, are you looking at your faith through the prism of your politics, or are you looking at politics through the prism of your faith? In other words, when there's a migrant caravan marching to the U.S.-Mexico border, are you more inclined to be processing your pastor's sermon through the filter of what Sean Hannity was saying on Fox News last night? Or are you watching Fox News processing what Sean Hannity is saying through the prism of what your pastor said on Sunday morning? That's an oversimplification perhaps, but I do sense that that is one of the real fault lines here is that for that former group, the folks who have become so wrapped up in the political and who find so much of their identity rooted in the culture wars and in the partisan political knife fighting of the day, it seems to me that pastors, church leaders, have this discipleship crisis on their hands. And to the degree that it's informed by the split that I was describing a minute ago, it's that a lot of these folks have just sort of lost sight in some sense, not only of their identity in Christ and how that is to inform all of their other identities and to subordinate all of their other identities, but also lost sight of maybe the true purpose, the true mission of the church itself. We live in a very diverse town, politically diverse and diverse in many ways. 
we are a blue dot in the middle of a sea of red. So when you look at those blue-red maps, political maps, that's where we find ourselves. And the New York Times, uh, several months ago, maybe a year ago, I'm bad about how long ago things happened in the past, but they had an interactive graphic where you could type in your address and see what the registration, voter registration was for people around you. And when I put in my address, it was exactly 50-50. And so our church Mm. has a lot of probably libertarians, also Republicans, independents, Democrats. So it's hard to pin down. We have a pretty diverse church, even politically speaking, economically, a lot of different ways. But let's keep talking about this idea of politics and discipleship. And part of me gets the impression that we should stay out of politics, like the church should stay out of politics, just focus on Jesus or focus on the spiritual. This is kind of the example you gave of your Chris Winans at the Cornerstone talking about abortion, but not about politics. And then other parts say, no, we need to get involved in politics if it's to lead the charge for our particular party or critique Christians who have unbiblical views, like unbiblical loyalties, idolatries in their politics. What do you think? Should Christians, should the church, should pastors speak to partisan issues or should churches, pastors stay out of it? And I feel like there's a lose-lose here because if Christians and pastors stay out of it, then we turn that over to media. If they get involved in it, then they become part of the political mess and the hyper-partisanship of our day. So how do we think about church involvement in the area of politics? You know, it's a really good question because it's a really tough question. What I try to get across in the book is this concern that a lot of pastors have that many of their congregants sort of aren't spiritually mature enough to handle politics. In other words, that they are to just even engage at, let's just say, a conversation about abortion, right? An election is upcoming. Maybe there's a ballot referendum in their state or whatever, right? So a pastor might say, okay, well, I'm going to make an exception and we're going to talk about abortion, right? Well, one of two things is going to happen, and maybe both will happen. But on the one hand, they're going to get sort of swamped by people afterwards saying, hey, well, why don't we talk about this other thing? You just really explicitly got political about abortion, but have you heard about the food stamps bill that's getting held up in Congress? Like, what about, you know, caring for the poor and the orphaned and the widowed? You know, what about the migrant caravan? You know, and they might come out from the other side. You know, didn't you hear there's an invasion at the southern border? Why aren't you talking about that, right? So in other words, you sort of open the door to what can start as kind of a narrowly tailored conversation around this one thing can suddenly, it's mission creep, as they say in the military, right? One minute you are blowing up a small munitions hut somewhere, and the next minute you're waging war on the whole continent because there's just not an ability to rein it back in. I think the other thing that can happen, and I've had this conversation with a lot of pastors, is so you preach about abortion from the pulpit one morning. And some of those believers who perhaps are maybe not deeply rooted in their faith, they're a little bit immature spiritually, they hear that and they think, okay, well, red team good, blue team evil, life is made in the image of God, and those people are trying to destroy it. And so therefore, I am now to be programmed as like a knee-jerk partisan soldier in this holy war, and they can't reel it back in. I think that if you are a Christian who is able to compartmentalize a little bit, in other words, 
you can engage and really engage deeply at the civic level with political questions, political campaigns. There's nothing wrong with doing any of that as a Christian at all. Christians have every right, the same as other citizens, to make their voice heard in the public square and to try to influence policy debates and all of it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. I think if the church itself involve itself in politics, that slope becomes incredibly slippery. People can start to lose sight in the congregation very quickly. They lose that ability to compartmentalize. Okay, why am I here? And what is the purpose of the church? Is the purpose of the church to glorify God, to worship with my community of believers, and then to take outside of the walls of the church, take the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the nations and to baptize unbelievers and to advance God's kingdom? Or, because you heard the pastor's sermon the other day, maybe our purpose is also to help win this next election. Maybe our purpose is to help win this culture war. Maybe our purpose is to fight for Judeo-Christian America as we've known it. That is my concern. It's not the concern of the individual Christian. It's more the institution of the church. Right. So you're helping make a good distinction there between individual Christians and what they do versus what the church structure officially does. But let's take ourselves back to the 1960s and civil rights marches. We all have this idea that if we lived at these crucial moments in history, we would have done the right thing, right? The heroic thing, the courageous thing. Who knows what we would have really done had any of us been there. But let's just kind of think about it from churches. If we could go now and give those churches advice, what would we tell them to do? Would we have told them to, look, focus on the spiritual. Don't get involved in this fight for racial justice because it's political and it's before the courts and it's in Congress. And don't tell people that they should vote for this person or that person because of the civil rights legislation. Don't do it. Stay out of it. Or do we look back and admire those churches, those pastors, those Christian leaders who did get involved. Because one of my contentions is that one man's culture war is another man's fight for justice. And a lot of it depends on where we sit and how much we agree or disagree with a particular issue. Some Christians want the church to speak loudly about abortion, but not so much about these other issues. Some people want the church to speak loudly about immigration, but to not speak on maybe abortion or something like that. So put yourself back in the 1960s. If you were in your dad's shoes pastoring a church, would you have wanted to speak out as a leader on civil rights issues? Or would you have said, nope, we're going to stick to the spiritual and the kingdom of God and baptizing people and the Great Commission, that kind of stuff? It's a heck of a question. And I appreciate you asking it. I really do. And let's be clear, and I'm not just talking about the historical counterfactual, but I think with a number of these topics that we've named, maybe some others that we haven't named, these are not black and white questions, right? I think that people of good faith you know, I suppose pun intended, can and should wrestle with them and try to figure out, okay, what makes sense for us in this moment? And part of the reason why I carve out abortion as an issue where I will never have an issue with a pastor addressing abortion from the pulpit is because I do believe that life is made in the image of God. And I understand why pastors can say very plausibly, look, you don't have to view this as a political issue. This is fundamentally a spiritual issue because when Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's, he said to the man in the crowd, whose face is on that coin? And he said, Caesar's, right. Caesar's face 
is on that coin, so give it back to Caesar. But God's face is on you, so give yourself back to God. If you believe that humanity is made in the image of God, then you don't view abortion at its core as a political issue, which of course, if I can go far afield, Pastor, for just one moment, it sort of raises this question, well, if we don't view abortion as a political issue, then why have so many evangelicals put all their eggs in the political basket over the last 50, 60 years, right? If you believe that it is a profound spiritual issue, then why has there been so much political effort around abortion, but very little spiritual effort. Not to say none. I mean, I know lots of people who have invested at the grassroots level and tried to change hearts and minds, but like fundamentally, Roe v. Wade falls and the number of raw abortions in this country goes up, right? So you won the political battle, but have you won the spiritual battle? No. In fact, it seems like you're losing it. So I think that is kind of a case study for the danger here that sure, you can preach about these things, but even as churches were preaching about the civil rights movement, which I agree was appropriate to do because, again, humanity is made in the image of God, but there were, parallel to that, sustained efforts at the grassroots level, social efforts to win hearts and minds and to change public opinion. I don't believe we've seen that same thing with abortion, not to just completely get myopic in talking about abortion. But obviously, I think that is the one issue that many evangelical congregations will hear political preaching about, and for reasons that I think are understandable. You do then have a conversation, obviously, about, okay, well, what about immigration? What about poverty? What about the dangers of excessive wealth? You know, what about race relations? Uh, what about abuse? You know, like Keith Simon and Tim Alberta can reach very different conclusions on this in good faith. I think the thing for me is if a pastor is really doing their job well, if they are discipling their people, and I mean discipling them, I'm using that verb in the way that we're talking Jesus and his disciples, like really discipling them, like being hard on them when they need to really hear it, right? If a pastor is really discipling his people and not just making sure that they're getting that discipling for an hour on Sunday morning, but that they're getting it throughout the week, discipling them means, hey, get off your social media. Stop watching Fox News or MSNBC. Stop listening to talk radio. Discipling them means that you are helping them to have an information consumption diet throughout the week that glorifies God, that they're listening to podcasts when they're in the car or that they're starting their day with their 30 minutes of quiet time or that, you know, if you have to watch your news somewhere, maybe get it from PBS. Don't get it from somebody who's just trying to scare you and make you angry and resentful. In other words, I believe that if pastors and churches are really doing that hard work of discipling and really preaching the word and getting their people to be Bible people, then I believe that most of those people are going to vote biblically because they'll know the Bible. That might sound almost reductive or might sound simplistic, but it seems to me that when you hear some of these pastors almost infantilizing their people with these explicit partisan endorsements like, well, here's how we as Christians think about this issue, so you need to go vote that issue in the fall, in many ways it seems to reveal a lack of spiritual, theological, biblical depth in those churches.
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. We try to say that Jesus was political but not partisan, and that usually throws people for a second. In other words, Jesus wasn't a Republican or a Democrat. He wouldn't have felt comfortable in either because he had a platform, the Sermon on the Mount, all of his teaching, the whole Bible, that is far greater than any of those platforms. You can't fit Jesus into any political party's set of ideas. And he's not running for president. He's king of the universe. Becoming the president would be a huge step down for Jesus. But he is political and that what he's trying to do in the kingdom of God is about bringing his kingdom on earth. It's how human beings interact. Politics can't be reduced to partisanship. And so Tim Keller used to say that if you're following Jesus, you're going to be at odds with both political parties. It doesn't mean you can't more or less identify with one or the other, but you're always going to be at odds. You're never going to feel truly at home in either one. And that's why your loyalty to Christ is going to be greater than your loyalty to your party. And you're going to have to be able to critique both parties. You're going to have to be able to speak against both parties. But I'm a little bit nervous when we say that churches shouldn't talk about political issues, not partisan issues. Like, I don't have any desire to tell people what party to vote for, what candidate to vote for. But we've got to talk about these issues. Otherwise, I feel like we're abdicating our responsibility Real quickly, I don't disagree with you when you frame it that way. If you want to say, you know, poverty is a political issue, right? Sure. There's no way to have a conversation about poverty. I suppose if you are just doing verse by verse, line by line, and refusing any sort of application, and some churches will do that, then sure, you could sort of sidestep an uncomfortable conversation about, you know, poverty in your community and what policies or policy proposals might be germane to it. I don't disagree with you necessarily that the church does at some level have a responsibility to talk about some of these political issues as long as it is done through an explicitly biblical lens. Yes. Which you may have some listeners right now being like, well, no, duh, of course, it's in church. (laughs) But the problem is, as I document quite thoroughly throughout the book, that you've got a lot of churches that are preaching politics with zero biblical application. It's not at all through the lens of Scripture. It is just hot takes from the pulpit, no different than you would hear on cable news. I guess my point from a minute ago was sort of making the same point that you and Tim Keller and others have made, which is, look, if you're really preaching good 
theology and you're discipling your people in biblical truths, then there's some room for like modern day application in there and talking about politics, but you're certainly not doing it with your thumb on the scales for either party. You're not doing it to advance an agenda. You're doing it to advance God's agenda. And that's obviously a distinct thing from what you see in a lot of churches. By the way, not just conservative white churches over here. You see it from churches on the left as well. People, of course, have flooded me my email and my Twitter feed, like, well, when are you going to do the black church? When are you going to do the progressive church? And it's like, okay, well, those aren't my faith traditions. That's not where I came from. And by the way, I didn't see anybody on January 6th waving, you know, a progressive Christian flag, you know, rainbow Christian flag, right? Like, I think that we can come to an agreement at the very least with this idea that there's something dangerously disruptive happening now inside the white evangelical movement that we have not seen from the others. I completely agree. And I think if you go back to earlier, we were talking about two kinds of Christians, Russell Moore type and Jerry Falwell Jr. Maybe it comes down to, and I think you said this even then, are you prioritizing Christ or are you prioritizing politics? Is politics like a means to an end of greater loving your neighbor and bringing Christ's kingdom here on earth, helping people? Or is Christ a means to an end, a way for you to gain power or money or fame or whatever? I want to talk a little bit about Christian nationalism because we've talked here on the podcast with Paul Miller. We wrote a book on it with Andrew Whitehead, with Russell Moore, with lots of people. And I ask them all definitions and they all give me different definitions. Michael Byrd, throw him in there. They all give different definitions of Christian nationalism. But I want to talk about it through Mike Johnson, who's the new speaker of the house. And when you look at Mike Johnson, he has a lot in common with someone, say, like Russell Moore. I mean, he grew up in a Southern Baptist home in Louisiana. He adopted a child and his wife kind of burdened by the need that kids have adopted child. He's strongly pro-life. He's part of a Southern Baptist church. His brother-in-law is a part of a Southern Baptist church in Louisiana or a pastor, I mean, of that church. In fact, right before Russell Moore entered into the ERLC, Mike Johnson was a member of that board, that commission, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist. So in some sense, he looks like what Christians should want, a godly man who's trying. I mean, he hasn't used his position for wealth. In fact, he's gotten some criticism because he doesn't have much money. But here he's trying to use his position to bring, I guess, good things into our country. And yet other people, other Christians like Christian Cobes Dumay, they've called him a Christian nationalist. He's a theocrat. He's somebody we should be afraid of. He's exactly what we should be concerned about. And I'm like, well, I don't know which is it. Is Mike Johnson a guy? Now, he's from Louisiana, so he's going to speak in Louisiana Southern Baptist talk that I personally don't talk that way. That's not my background. But we all have a background, and he can't avoid his, just like I can't avoid mine or you yours. So is he a guy that we should be happy that he's in this position and the believers in this position to do good in the world? Or should we be scared of him because he is the ultimate Christian nationalist? Can you help me figure out why are people scared of him? What makes him a Christian nationalist? Or maybe you don't agree. You push back on that. Well, I think the question you just asked probably presents something deliberately so on your part, but presents something of a false choice, right? I don't know that I am either celebrating Mike Johnson or dreading Mike Johnson yet at this point. Now, I will say two things. Number one, I don't know the man. I think I've met him twice and it was in passing because my time spent covering Congress didn't much overlap with him coming and we just don't know each other well. That being said, 
I know a lot of people who do know Mike Johnson very well. I know a lot of people who run in his circles, politically and otherwise. And Mike Johnson has a track record. Mike Johnson was not only willing to go along with and enable the deadly and profoundly destructive lie that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump, he was in many ways a key catalyst in advancing that deception and in promoting an effort that would have essentially disenfranchised voters in a number of states that Joe Biden had carried by way of supporting a bogus lawsuit that came out of Texas in late 2020. But he did that through the legal system, right? I mean, I don't know him either, and I'm not necessarily a big fan. I'm just trying to figure out what a Christian nationalist is because I'm afraid it's sometimes used as a slur against all Christians. Like, you know, if you're a conservative Christian, we call you a Christian nationalist, and it's an easy way to dismiss you. I didn't vote for Donald Trump, never have, never will. But I didn't vote for Biden or Clinton either, by the way. But he took his opposition to the court system, which is kind of what the court system is designed to do. So can we hold that against him? Can we hold some uh, against someone? Yes, I can, and I'll tell you why. Okay. So let me ask you this, Pastor, like as an example. If you took a case to court that was predicated upon a knowing, demonstrable falsehood, do you believe that that is morally wrong? Yes. I mean, I think you're saying that if Mike Johnson knows or me or whoever in the hypothetical knows that something is not true and yet takes it to court, even though the court system is designed to adjudicate that, knowing that it's not true means it's the wrong thing or the immoral thing to do. Correct. Well, in my view, yes, because this is a question, again, of render under Caesar, right? Like the court system is a part of our earthly kingdom, right? But the idea ultimately is that you are responsible for speaking truth, for calling out and holding accountable falsehoods as a believer. And so even though you might be procedurally and legally well within your right to take advantage of this opportunity to advance this bogus lawsuit that the Supreme Court laughed out of the courtroom and that nobody else would be willing to entertain, you are doing damage to the witness of the gospel, in my opinion, because, and I've talked about this a little bit in the book, but, you know, for the same reason that Greg Locke, who will traffic in these wild conspiracy theories in one moment and then in the next moment talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ— The gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection is not a conspiracy theory. But if you are going to be known for both advancing this gospel of Jesus Christ and for advancing the narrative that the election was stolen, then one is necessarily sapping the other of its credibility in the eyes of the outside world. Mike Johnson has an enormous platform. Even before he became Speaker of the House, he represents 800,000 constituents They also know him as the guy who was a key player, who played a starring role in advancing this farcical narrative that the election had been stolen from Donald Trump. And so out of hand, they're like, well, not sure I can believe anything that guy says, right? That's my point. It's a question at its core. It's a question of credibility. Can the message even reach all the nations when the messengers are so compromised? And 
I don't know that Mike Johnson is a Christian nationalist. I've heard him say a couple of things that I find to be kind of cringeworthy, like when he says, well, if you want to know what I believe, it's all right there in the Bible, right? If you want to know what I believe about government politics, it's all right there in the Bible. And you're like, well, really? What does it say about the next continuing resolution to prevent a government shutdown, right? What does it say about the next Defense Authorization Act? Like, I'm not mocking, but it's a silly answer to that question. And so, to the point of definitions, not that you asked me for one specifically, but I think this idea that the Bible is not just the inspired word of God, and it's not just the revelation of God's plan for the ages and of God taking on flesh to become fully man, fully God, the mediator between a perfect God and a broken humanity and all of the theology and the empty tomb, that it's not just that, but it's also a governing handbook. And then it's not just a governing handbook for any old nation, but it's a governing handbook for this nation, this nation that was conceived in covenant with God, that we were not just a nation born out of Judeo-Christian ethics and values, but we were born specifically as a Christian nation that was meant to be governed by Christians. And this idea that we need to reclaim that Christian nation from these godless secularists on the outside, that to me is Christian nationalism. And I think from what I've seen from Mike Johnson and what I know of the man, he has come dangerously close to flirting with that. I would not put the label on him just because I've never sat across from him and had any conversations. But I think by virtue of his actions and rhetoric in the aftermath of the 2020 election alone and in the run-up to January 6th, I think that he is disqualified from being Speaker of the House. That's just my view politically. I really hear you. I think you put your finger on something when you said that when you pursue something that everyone knows, including yourself, is wrong, didn't happen, was untrue, and then pursue that in court, and then call yourself a Christian and be very vocal about your faith, you do cause a lot of people to turn off your faith because they realize they can't trust you in one area, then why should I trust you in this other area, the area of politics? If you find yourself to be there, you know, unfaithful, then why should I trust you when it comes to Christianity? I would be remiss miss if I didn't say that you mentioned in your book my co-host for this podcast, Truth Over Tribe, my friend Patrick Miller, who does this with me, a pastor at our church. You quote him in your chapter on how media covers Christian scandals and things like that. So you're talking with Julie Roys and others in this chapter. And Patrick had tweeted out that the Christian Today top articles, I think, of 2022, I believe, the most reported on articles were 15 out of 20, I think that's the right number, about scandal. And so you quoted his Twitter feed and then went on with it. Now, I think Patrick's point back then was that it seems like that there's a drive for clicks. And this isn't just at Christianity Today. In fact, they're a great magazine. And we had Tim Dalrymple on the podcast and then Russell Moore. So we have a great relationship with them. But it's that when Christian media or when Christians highlight scandals, what they end up doing is undermining the trust of the local pastor. Now, they don't do that intentionally, but it's just part of what comes with it. And no one wants to hide. Well, at least we don't want to downplay or minimize scandal. People need to be held accountable and the truth needs to come out and justice needs to be done and prevail. And so I get why it's hard if you're a Christian magazine or a reporter or someone like that, because you know what gets clicks, you know what people are interested in, you know, if it bleeds, it leads type thing. And yet, I've been in situations where because of, say, a podcast like The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill and the scandal of Mark Driscoll, people have said, you know, can we trust you to me? They've said that to me, and I'm like, well, 
why would you not? I'm the same person that's been pastoring here for 23 years. Why would you not trust me? Well, because of this podcast I listen to, it makes me cynical about all churches and all pastors. So I don't know if there's a solution to that. Maybe not. But do you understand the difficulty that pastors are put in when they're just trying to be faithful, but they are maybe not trusted by their congregation because of all the national scandals that swirl around? Do you get that? I do. And it's funny, you know, I've had this conversation with my pastor and I've had it with a number of other pastors. I think the difficulty for me is what you said at the outset about how the coverage of that scandal can hurt the credibility of the local church. And for me, I say, well, yeah, but isn't the scandal what hurts the credibility of the church? And that's not to be cute. I understand completely the point you're making, and I'm sympathetic to it. And in fact, at one point in the book, I talk with a pastor from Greg Locke's town in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, and he's kind of complaining to me, like, look, like for years now, a whole bunch of local pastors have put together this amazing community program where we take care of all the underserved kids, we feed them, we clothe them, we mentor them, and like we've never gotten a single press clipping, and we don't want to. Like, we don't want a press clipping. But then Greg Locke comes around talking about Tom Hanks wanting to cannibalize your kids, and like the whole national media comes to Mount Juliet. Like, it's a problem, and I completely sympathize with it. However, I have to say that this idea that by airing the church's dirty laundry that we are damaging the credibility of the church and therefore keeping people away, I just fundamentally disagree with it. I'll just tell you why. And by all means, challenge me on this. But two things come to mind. First, the New Testament model, as I see it, and I write about this in the book, the New Testament model seems awfully clear that we are towards the outsiders, that we are to practice unrelenting grace and forgiveness and mercy, gentleness, because they don't know God. They don't know any better. And so we are to just treat them like with a constant benefit of the doubt. But inside the church, Those around us who do know God and who do know better, they are to be held to an incredibly high standard and that there is to be strict accountability. And I think that in the modern American context, we've completely inverted that model. We have nothing but fire and brimstone and hostility and judgment for everybody outside the church, those godless heathens. But inside the church, when it comes to the scandal, when it comes to the ugliness, when it comes to the terrible judgment of a certain pastor, certain church elder, whatever it is, like we want to give it a pass. We want to turn a blind eye to it because, as I write about in the book, like my dad had a pastor on our staff who was getting handsy with all these women at the church, and he dismissed the man, but he wouldn't tell anybody why, and he didn't even file a formal complaint with the EPC, and wouldn't you know it, it sounds as though that guy wound up working elsewhere because my dad didn't want the word to get around the community that there was some guy who was grabbing women's butts at the church, and therefore that was going to diminish the credibility of the church and the community, and people might not come anymore. But like, I just believe that that is abiblical. I don't think it's right. I think that what we are taught is that the highest levels of accountability must exist in the church if we are to glorify God and to love the bride of Christ the way that we are taught. The second thing I would say in partnership with that is that when you look at Paul's letters, right? They were called occasional letters for a reason. He's writing to address occasions, and most of those occasions are pretty ugly inside of the church, right? Especially in Corinth. 
And you might be tempted to think to yourself, like, why did the ancient church councils, when they read this, weren't they worried that Paul identifying this awful sexual immorality and these power struggles and these personality clashes, this really selfish, you know, nasty behavior, aren't we worried that people are going to read that and that it's going to diminish the reputation and the credibility of the church? And if so, maybe we just cut those parts out. Maybe we leave in everything else from Paul, but maybe we cut those parts out. But they didn't do that. The problem I have, Pastor, is that many churches do not practice any sort of real, meaningful accountability. Institutions struggle to self-police, not just religious institutions, all institutions. And so I think part of the reason there's such an appetite for readers of CT or other publications, for that matter, for the sort of scandals in the church is because they feel like the churches themselves are not transparent and not accountable. And there's a desire to understand the full scope of what's happening inside these churches and what are they doing about it. And so Rachel Den Hollander, who I write about in the book, like, you know, her life has been made absolutely miserable by this crusade that she's been on to hold churches accountable for sexual abuse. And she has been treated horribly by fellow believers, same with Julie Royce, all for this sin of introducing accountability to the church. And I just believe that when we stand in judgment one day, it's not going to be Rachel Den Hollander and Julie Royce who have to answer for that. I think that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing as servants. But I recognize that this is a very sensitive thing and that plenty of people don't view it the way that I do. Yeah, I think I agree with maybe all or at least the vast majority of what you're saying. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul says that I don't judge those outside the church, but I judge those inside the church. And I completely agree that there needs to be a call to holiness and we need to hold people accountable that we all want, we should want at least, the truth to come out and justice to prevail. If we're hiding wrongdoing and we're hiding scandal, that's a problem. So we can say that. That's all true, full stop what have you. We can also say that the way media works and the way the incentive structures work is that advertisers pay more when you get more clicks and that media agencies are not morally pure or at least not any more than the rest of us. And therefore they want those clicks and therefore they're tempted to justify all kinds of reasons about trumpeting the large scandals. And when 15 out of 20 of your top news stories, you might just ask, is that representative of the church? In other words, are three-fourths of the churches out there doing this kind of thing? Now, I don't know. Maybe that's the wrong metric to place on it and the wrong way to frame it and think about it. I just know from a local level, when you're trying to pastor a church and you're trying to lead a congregation, maybe you're trying to raise money to expand a building or to send some things onto a mission field or to help poor people in your community, or maybe it's not about money. Maybe it's just about your character and your leadership. And you hear, well, Ravi Zacharias did X, Y, Z, so maybe you are too. Well, do you have any reason to think I am? No, but he did it and they didn't know it for years afterwards. So maybe you are too. It just gets discouraging. I'm not saying there's a solution and I'm not saying the solution is to cover it up, but I am saying that until you've been on that side of it, it's maybe hard to feel the weight of the problem. Does that make sense a little bit? Yeah, it does. And look, the Ravi Zacharias thing, if we can just riff for a moment on it, it's really interesting because you know, my wife is Indian. She was raised Hindu. And 
the two great influences in her life that brought her to Christ were my father, for whom she was the daughter that he never had, and Ravi Zacharias. And I was, like many, not just devastated, but in fact, and I talk about this with Julie Roy's in chapter 20 of the book, like we both recounted how when those initial allegations were coming out about Ravi with the woman who he'd been grooming and whatnot, our first reaction was we completely disbelieved it. We defended him. And I think that there's something really deeply revealing in that, that when we talk about sort of the earthly idols and the earthly glorification, right, that we had this gaping blind spot for somebody like Ravi Zacharias. While I understand everything you just said, and I agree with it, and I realize that there's probably no easy solution, I also think that, you know, when you have these moments like Mars Hill, when you have these moments like Ravi Zacharias, the implications are so cascading. In other words, are we more worried that the coverage might diminish, undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ when we perhaps should be more worried about the behavior, the behavior itself, right? And how prevalent it might be. You said a minute ago, like, is it really three quarters? I don't know. I don't know how to quantify any of that. I do know that I struggle to think of a single pastor I visited with around the country when we've gotten into these waters around abuse and cover-ups and transparency that hasn't had some horror story that they've shared, if not from their present congregation, then from somewhere they'd been in the past. And many of them are deep in prayer every day that that evil will not visit upon their congregation. My point in saying that is just that in some way, I actually hope that there's a counterintuitive thing that comes true, that all the coverage, all the eyeballs, the consumer fixation on those stories, I actually hope that it will help to make churches that have maybe been complacent and maybe been lax, maybe it will help to make them all the more vigilant. I can tell you that in my conversations with some church leaders, I've had some really eye-opening conversations with people who, in light of some of these scandals, have implemented entirely new policies and not just specific policies, but almost like entire layers of policies and new church rules aimed at protecting children, aimed at making sure that men and women are not left alone in the same rooms at certain times, like things that they had not thought of before. So I like to think of all of this happening in the context of a God who is so big and so complicated and so unfathomable that these things that happen that we struggle with on the day-to-day, such as some of that coverage, might very well ultimately be in his design and for his purposes. And maybe that's just me telling myself a happy story to supply a silver lining for all of that ugliness. But I really do believe that when I stand before judgment, I want to err on that side of accountability. Well, I appreciate the trust and the sovereignty of God that he has a plan and that he is executing that plan. And while it might not seem wise to us, he is good and he will accomplish his will. And I do think even in my life, I've been sobered by what I've seen, warned away from you know, even getting close to certain behaviors and sobered by all that. So I'm one that would say I've benefited from reading the coverage of this stuff. 
in your book, you go from kind of place to place. Robert Jeffress gets attention. We could spend an hour talking about that whole conversation. It was fascinating. Greg Locke, who we've had on the podcast before. That's crazy, that whole story. You got Lynchburg and the whole Liberty thing there and what happened with Jerry Falwell Sr. and then Jr. I just kept thinking, I hope there's another chapter. And I got all the way to the end and was ready for more. So I would encourage people to read it. Now, I would say this, at the end, you go back to the person, Chris Winans, who took over from your father. He had been there already under your father's leadership, and your father hands it over to him before he passes away. And he had an exodus from his church, you know, because of COVID. It was a lot of reasons that you tell him the story. But part of it was around this political idolatry. At the end of the book, you come back to him, and he's kind of rebounded. I mean, the church cornerstone is bounced back. It's doing better than it was before. And it's kind of re-strengthened. And some of that gave me the idea that you put that at the end of the book as a way of kind of saying, hey, there's hope down this path. We don't need to be discouraged and give up, but we as Christians can go a different direction. We're not forced to continue on the same road that we're on. Are you hopeful? Well, I'm glad you picked that up, Pastor. Look, let me say this. I'm hopeful because the tomb is empty. And because as my dad used to always say, God doesn't bite his fingernails, right? So I'm hopeful because I really truly believe. And let me be honest, I came into this process very nervous about what this project would do to my own faith. And it's hard for me to even put into words just how good the Lord has been to me and how faithful he's been to me. I feel my faith strengthened every day when I feared that the opposite might in fact be true. I'm also hopeful because of what I write about in the epilogue of the book, and no good author gives away his ending, but here we go. What the heck? What Chris Winans is telling his congregation, he finds the strength, he finds the courage to begin kind of confronting people over some of this and saying, you know, what is the mission of the church? Truly, what is the purpose of the church? Is the purpose of the church to help dominate the country? Is the purpose of the church to help win the culture wars? Is the purpose of the church to help, you know, somebody get elected? Or is the purpose of the church to make disciples and to spread the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth, right? He talks about it in terms of finite purpose versus an infinite purpose. And, you know, the finite purpose, the idea being that, like, there's a winner and a loser, and it's zero sum. And he talks about how in a game like baseball, a finite game like baseball, how there's just, you know who the players are. It's the nine guys on the field, right, and the one batter at the plate. But in an infinite game, you don't know who the players are. And and he kind of frames this. I'm not nearly as eloquent as he is, but he frames this around this idea that if the church is, in fact, infinite, we don't know who the players are. The person who you're treating as your enemy right now, that Democrat down the street who's pro-choice and who's a Marxist, socialist, you know, CRT promoting, transgender enabling, progressive Democrat, how do you know that God does not have the most fantastic design for that individual and that they may do more to serve him and to glorify him and to advance his kingdom than you could ever imagine? So why treat them like they're your enemy? It's abiblical, it's antithetical to the message of the gospel, but also it just doesn't make sense tactically if, in fact, the mission of the church is infinite. So I guess part of my optimism does come from examples like that where 
guys like Chris Winans, who were almost bullied out of their congregations and who saw the worst of American Christianity, they have now sort of gotten a beat on what could be the best of American Christianity and have begun to forge something of a formula for pulling their congregations back from the brink a little bit and saying, let's have a really robust, clear-eyed conversation about our church and who we are as believers together. And look, a lot of people left that church already. More will probably continue to leave as he has those conversations. But I also think more people will come in. And I think that there will be a common purpose and there will be, I think, a healthier church as a result of it because all of the distractions, all of the extra stuff that we are not called to idolize, not called to prioritize inside of the church, they'll be gone and we will once more have a community of believers with their eyes on the prize. So I do take optimism from that. I love your idea that you never know who might become a believer. And instead of trying to beat them at the ballot box, what if you tried to win them with love and humility? I think of that story in Luke chapter 9, where James and John, the brothers, want to call down fire on a Samaritan village because they disagree over theology and those Samaritans are being rude, not letting them stay in the village while they're on their way to Jerusalem. And yet after the resurrection of Jesus, it says that the Samaritans are coming to faith. I mean, we look at the book of Acts and here are these Samaritan people coming to faith. So I imagine James and John blown away because here they are worshiping, you know, post-resurrection of Jesus. They're now worshiping alongside some of those same people that they were wanting to destroy a few weeks or a few months earlier. And I think that kind of idea that Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem to defeat the Romans. He goes to die for the Romans. And he comes to die for us. And he wins by sacrifice. He wins by serving. He wins by loving. I just loved your book. The next one you write, I'll read it too, because I read American Carnage and loved it. I read The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, American Evangelicals in the Age of Extremism. Loved that. So I look forward to reading your next one whenever it comes out. Thanks so much for spending so much time with us, Tim. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you, Pastor. I appreciate everything you're saying, everything you're doing. You're probably going to have to wait a long time for that next book because I need to pay more attention to my family (laughs) for the next few years. But I appreciate you. God bless you. Thank you very much for having me on. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Before you hop off, I want to tell you about a daily newsletter called The Pour Over. It gives you today's news in very bite-sized chunks. But here's the important part. The people who are putting this together are Christians, and they're trying to give you news that's nonpartisan. And maybe even more importantly than that, and what I love about it, is that they're trying to help you consume the news in a non-anxious way, which can be really hard when most news organizations are thriving on your anxiety. If you want to subscribe, you can do so for free at www.thepourover.org. That's www.thepourover.org. I think if you do that, you're going to experience a bit more sobriety in your news life.